today's scripture reading is taken from Genesis 23, verses 17 to 20, 24, verses 1 to 14, and 62 to 67, and Genesis 25, verses 7 to 11. Please turn with me to Genesis 23, verse 17. So the field of Ephraim in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, from among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman who shall, whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Genesis 24, verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairai and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes 
And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Genesis 25 verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahoirai. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading God's word, Sarah, uh, Clara. So good to be with all you all here today this morning, and what a joy it is that we can sing and have fellowship before and after the service. I promise that today's sermon will not be three and a half hours. Let's hope I keep that promise. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Dear Father, we thank you indeed for how you have spoken, and Father, we pray that you would Bless us as we come to your word this morning. We pray that you would speak and may your spirit open our hearts to receive from you and to respond to you with hearts made alive, with hearts full of faith and a desire to walk in your ways. So Father, we pray that you would help us glorify Christ, help us to see him and to see our need for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, do you find it hard to relate to the Bible? You know, scriptures, dramatic events can seem far removed from our everyday experiences. You know, we live in the ordinary. That's where we spend most of our days. You know, our daily lives aren't filled with earth-shaking encounters, at least not most of the time. And because we don't see God at work we, in obvious ways, He can seem distant, maybe even indifferent to what we're going through. And we may struggle to trust Him because we are not always aware of His faithfulness. I mean, indeed, we can be so preoccupied with the day-to-day that we fail to realize how God is working in and through us. Maybe for some of us, these past two years have felt like that. You know, we've gone through uh, the worst of COVID, hopefully the worst of COVID, and, and perhaps we've wondered, you know, where, where is God in all of this? Well, as we've seen in Abraham's life, God can move in miraculous, extraordinary ways. He can provide a son to a hundred-year-old man and his barren wife. You know, but Genesis 23 to 25 are interesting chapters. You know, these chapters bring the story of Abraham's life to a close. And compared with some of the previous chapters that we've seen in our series so far, these chapters may appear uh, uneventful perhaps a little unexciting. But these chapters reveal how God works in ordinary ways, in ordinary ways, moving behind the scenes, 
not always very conspicuously, but moving behind the scenes to accomplish His sovereign purposes for the good of His people. So these chapters are full of encouragement and hope for us, beloved, that we can have faith in our faithful God. In our passage, we have a wedding and two funerals, so not four weddings and a funeral. Uh, Genesis 23 is about the death and burial of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Genesis 24, Abraham arranges marriage for his son, Isaac. Uh, Genesis 25, Abraham, or rather, Genesis 25 records Abraham's death. You know, and these are very ordinary events. You have two funerals, you have uh, a marriage, a wedding. But through these ordinary events, God shows his steadfast love and faithfulness. And these chapters show us what it means for us to live and die by faith. So those are the two big points as we work our way through these chapters, to live and die by faith. Number one, living and marrying by faith. We'll look at Genesis 24 first. Now this chapter opens with Abraham nearing the end of his life. And the Lord has been faithful to Abraham. The chapter starts in verse 1 by saying, The Lord has blessed Abraham in all things. And this is just as God has, had promised Abraham all those years ago when he called Abraham to leave his homeland and to go by faith to the promised land. And Abraham trusts God's promise that he will establish his covenant with his son Isaac and his offspring after him. And God has shown his faithfulness to Abraham by blessing him through his life. So in desire to be faithful to God's promises, Abraham seeks a wife for his son. Now, as we think about Genesis 24, this isn't merely matchmaking. Abraham is living by faith. He understands that God's covenant to co- he understands that for God's covenant to continue across the generations, Isaac must marry and raise up offspring to inherit the promises. And we live by faith in every aspect of our lives, including marriage and family. Now, I think this example that Abraham sets for us tells us that we serve God by passing on the gospel to the next generation, by raising up the next generation to inherit the promises of the gospel. These are inherited by faith, right? Not just mere biology, but by faith. And in this task of raising up the next generation to trust in God's saving promises, this task isn't just the responsibility of parents, but we as a church family, we all, you know, regardless of your age, regardless of whether you're married or single, regardless of whether your children are young or older and they've left the house, regardless of who, your background, we all have a part to play in discipling the children and youth whom God has entrusted to us as a church family. You know, last week we had almost 70 children in children's ministry, nursery and Sunday school. Uh, many children to care for, many children to disciple and grow in the faith. So I encourage us to, to, to take this seriously. Right? For those of us uh, who have the opportunity, you know, teach in Sunday school, serve in the nursery, uh, get to know the youths among us, uh, spend time with them, open your lives and your homes to them and indeed, the youth ministry is looking for hosts to host youth meetings so that youths can gather for their activities. And it's a wonderful way that, to invite them into our homes and into our lives. Uh, encourage the parents among us. You know, this is not just the work of the parents, but encourage them. Come alongside them. See how you can spur them on 
as they disciple their children. Uh, good news, the book table is open downstairs on level three. So a quick plug, uh, there's a helpful book for parents called Parenting First Aid, Hope for the Discouraged. I, I think as a parent, I resonate with the title. There oftentimes when I struggle with parenting, and this, this, is, this is a series of devotions to encourage parents who feel you know, under pressure uh, as they parent their children. Right, so, so go down to the book table, you can find this after the service on level three. I'm so grateful for how God has brought Mark Collins here to serve among us as a pastor for family ministry. So that's Mark and his family over there. So after the service, do you know, stop by, speak to Mark. I'm, I'm sure he'd love to meet us and get to know us better as well as we seek to get to know him better too. So Abraham entrusts the task of finding a wife for Isaac to his most senior servant who had charge of all that he had. You know, the, the unnamed servant in this passage may have been Eliezer, who's mentioned in Genesis 15. We don't know for sure. You know, but this is a key task. And so Abraham holds the servant to a solemn oath. You know, he says, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Verses 3 and 4. So spiritual priorities not pragmatism, guide the choice of a wife for Isaac. You know, it, it would have been a way easier to find a wife for Isaac in Canaan because that's where Abraham and Isaac are already living. So the easiest thing to do would be to find a Canaanite wife for Isaac. But why doesn't Abraham desire a Canaanite wife? Well, Abraham knows because of what God had, had said to him in Genesis 15 that the Canaanites oppose God. The Canaanites are not followers of God and God promises that He will judge them for their sin and rebellion against Him. So it would be a spiritual disaster for Isaac to have a Canaanite wife. You know, a Canaanite wife would have led to spiritual and moral compromise. And if Isaac were to marry a Canaanite, he and his offspring would lose their distinctiveness as God's people. And if they lose their distinctiveness as God's people, how will they fulfill their calling to bless the nations if they look just like the nations? So Abraham is very clear to the servant, don't find a wife from the Canaanites, but go back to find a wife for Isaac from my family, back in my ancestral homeland. But even if a suitable woman is found among Isaac's extended family, she may be unwilling to leave her family and homeland behind and to go to Canaan. So the servant asks, it's, it's, it's a valid question, should Isaac then return to the land that Abraham had left in order to marry there? You know, this again would be the pragmatic thing to do. It would be a practical solution to a problem. But it would also mean forsaking God's promise of land. You know, therefore, Abraham says, not once but twice in verse 6 and 8, do not take my son back there. You know, Abraham encourages his servant to have faith in the faithful God. You know, this task that Abraham entrusts to this servant is a challenging one. But Abraham encourages his servant, look to God's faithfulness. Trust Him. You know, he's the Lord who makes and keeps covenant. You know, the Lord who took Abraham from his father's house and homeland swore to Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. 
He is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Abraham is, in trust in, is, is encouraging the servant to trust this God. Is anything too difficult for him? You know, the servant has a challenging task, but God will provide. And indeed, he says, Abraham says in verse 7, he will send his angel before you. I think these are really encouraging words, and these are really Abraham's last recorded words in Genesis. You know, what a wonderful way to leave the scene by giving these words of encouragement, by reminding us of God's steadfast love and faithfulness of His provision and how God is the one who ensures the continuity of His covenant promises. And the woman herself must also be willing to go. She too must trust God's promises, just as he believed God when He called him to go. So Isaac's wife must share his faith, share his faith in God's promises. You know, indeed, if, if no one suitable is found, then Abraham frees the servant from his oath. So, so the point of this whole exercise is not simply to find a wife. The point of this exercise is to find a wife who trusts God and who will trust God together with Isaac so that both of them carry on the promises of God in his covenant. Now, to those of us who are unmarried, you know, how are you entrusting to God your desire for marriage? You know, be faithful to God by seeking a marriage partner who shares your faith. That's so important. Who shares your faith in Jesus Christ. Who, who shares your confidence in the saving promises of God. You know, don't let pragmatism or worldly desires, or, or fears, or anxieties about remaining single. Don't let those things lead you to settle for someone who is ultimately spiritually incompatible. You know, and, th- and for those of us who are married, you know, how are we praying for and encouraging our spouses to live by faith? You know, I think it's so easy, especially after you get married, to fall into the rut of just pragmatism and the practicalities of life. Life just becomes, let's, let's just get this done, you know, make things work. You know, how, how crucial it is then as God's people that we pray for and encourage our spouses to live by faith, to, to, to shun the pragmatic culture around us, but to live by faith, to trust God as we live in marriage. The servant goes to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, this Abraham's brother, and the servant stations himself at the well at the time when women go out to draw water. Uh, but the servant relies not on human cleverness, but on God to guide and provide. And you can tell by the servant's prayer in verses 12 to 14. Right, the servant says, O Lord, you know, using the covenant name of God, right, O Lord, the faithful God of the covenant, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. You know, the key word in the servant's prayer is chesed. You know, that the Hebrew word chesed, which trans- translated in our English Bibles is steadfast love. And this word is mentioned four times in Genesis 24. It's a key word in this chapter. 
you know, chesed or, or steadfast love refers to God's faithful covenantal devotion to His people. And the servant trusts God to provide a wife for Isaac because of God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. And He will show steadfast love to Abraham by ensuring the covenant promises continue from generation to generation. Therefore, the servant trusts that this God of steadfast love will ensure that there will be a wife for Isaac because God is faithful to Abraham. Beloved, we can rest assured that if we belong to God through Jesus Christ, that He will hold us fast, not ultimately because of our love for Him, but ultimately because of His love for us, because of His steadfast love. And this God will guide and provide for us through the ups and downs of life. And He will hold us, our marriages, our families fast by His steadfast love. And we can trust Him. We can entrust our marriages to Him. We can entrust our children to Him. You know, our security rests in God's covenantal commitment to us. So how will the servant know who is the right one? So he seeks a sign of confirmation from the Lord. So right, besides giving the servant water, this woman whom God has appointed for Isaac will water his camels as well. So to the singles, what kind of dating advice does this give us? You know, does this mean that we should seek some kind of circumstantial sign from God pointing us to the right ones? You know, are we going to run out to get 10 camels and expect our spouse to be to water them? And then, ah, that's the right one. You know, but think about the sign. You know, what, what, what exactly is the servant looking for? Well, he's not looking for circumstantial proof, but rather he's looking for godly character. You know, think about the task of watering 10 camels. You know, this is no easy task. You know, I, I just did a quick Google search about this. So each, each camel can drink, on average, about 100 litres. So to water 10 camels, uh, about 1,000 litres of water. You know, that is the equivalent of about 2,000 bottles of mineral water. Right? And of course, back then, they didn't have packaged water like that. So, the, so this woman would have to draw from the well about 1,000 litres of water. How long would that take? Right? You know, if you measure the size of the bucket, volume of the bucket, etc., do the math. You know, this would have been a task that would take at least a number of hours to get done. What, what, does this, what does this say about the woman? I think this tells us that this woman would have to have a servant heart, that she would be generous, self-sacrificial, and she would be hospitable. You know, all marks of godliness. So what the servant is really looking for is not a circumstantial sign, but rather godliness in a potential spouse for Isaac. I think this says very much to us, for those of us who are seeking a, a spouse in marriage, this is what we should be looking for. Not, circumstan- not circumstantial signs, but godliness, godly character. As it says in Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What attracts us reveals what our hearts truly treasure. 
you know, the, the, the kind of spouse we look for says as much about ourselves as it does about our potential spouse. You know, if we love Jesus, then we will be drawn to someone who also loves Jesus and someone who reflects his character. You know, indeed, an excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Only the Lord can provide a godly spouse. So, beloved, tell your spouse today that you thank God for him or her. You know, praise God for godly spouses. You know, God can do far more abundantly than we ask or think. So even before the servant had finished praying, you know, behold, Rebecca appears. Verse 15. And she gives the servant a drink and draws water for his camels as well. So is she the one? You know, the servant isn't hasty to jump to conclusions just yet, but he waits on the Lord to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Verse 21. And when he's sure that Rebekah is the one appointed by God for Isaac, the servant gives her generous gifts. And it turns out that Rebekah is related to Abraham. She is his nephew's daughter. Beloved, this is providence, not coincidence. God is faithfully working behind the scenes to fulfill His promises. And He brings the right woman at the right time to the right place. And so the servant recognizes this and he praises God. In verse 27, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. So this is God's doing. And Rebecca's godliness contrasts with her brother Laban's greed. So as soon as her brother Laban sees the gifts, he goes to find the servant. You know, he, he's, he's intrigued. Like, wow, who's this person? Seems quite wealthy. You know, but the servant, to his credit, doesn't get distracted by Laban's hospitality, but faithfully puts his master's mission before his own comfort. And, and so the servant explains his mission to Laban and his family. And in his explanation, the servant emphasizes God's providence and guidance, as well as Abraham's faithfulness. And and verse 48 really sums up the servant's account to Laban and his family. He says, Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. the, The servant may have discerned Laban's cunning character. So he makes very clear that this is all God's doing. This is not human orchestration. And he he urges Laban himself to show steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham. I think the implication is pretty clear to us that if we have received God's steadfast love and faithfulness, if we are beneficiaries of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, then it is our responsibility to respond to others with steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, this is what defines us as God's people. You know, as God's people, we are those who have received steadfast love and faithfulness from God in the gospel. So our responsibility is to show, to demonstrate, to reflect that same covenantal faithfulness, that same steadfast love to those around us, to love them. And I think it's no coincidence that Jesus says, this is how the world will know that we are His disciples, 
if we show that same steadfast love and faithfulness to others. This is what marks us out as the people of God. And this is what the servant encourages Laban and his family to do, show steadfast love. Laban and his father, Bethuel, reply, you know, the, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. You know, I think this is remarkable, especially knowing the character of Laban. Uh, this is an example of how God works behind the scenes to turn the hearts of man according to his will. Knowing this, the servant again worships the Lord. Verse 52. You know, it's remarkable how many times in this passage the servant worships God. You know, this is the life of faith as the servant demonstrates to us. Worship, pray, trust, and obey. You know, this is what it looks like to live by faith. Worship, pray, trust, and obey. You know, but there is another snag in this whole uh, encounter. As the servant prepares to leave the next morning, Laban and his mother insist that Rebekah remain at least 10 days. Verse 55. You know, this foreshadows Jacob's experience with Laban later on in Genesis. Laban cheated Jacob into staying longer than he had bargained for. And you kind of see Laban's cunning at work here in, in pressing for Rebekah to stay longer, you know, at least 10 days, kind of open-ended. So the decision is left to Rebekah. You know, so the family asks, so will you go now or will you stay longer? You, know, you can imagine the pressure on Rebekah to maybe... Uh, accede to her family's desire and stay longer. So Rebecca breaks the deadlock by responding with faith. And she says, I will go. I will go. And, and that's really an echo of how Abraham also went when God called him to go to the promised land. Rebecca is responding by faith and she goes by faith. I think it's wonderful how God graciously provides a woman of faith to be Isaac's wife, ensuring that his covenant continues. And indeed, Isaac, in verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So there's a passing on of the promises from generation to generation, the promises that first came to Abraham and Sarah are now passed on to Isaac and Rebekah. So God will keep His promises through the generations until the promised offspring arrives. And beloved, Genesis 24 points to a greater, lasting marriage. If this chapter is not fulfilled in our, not ultimately fulfilled in our earthly marriages. But this chapter is fulfilled in God the Father giving His only beloved Son for His people. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham and Isaac. And He is the bridegroom who lays down His life for His bride, the church. It says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor. So beloved, regardless of your marital status, whether you're single or you're married or you're divorced, this chapter promises us marriage. Not an earthly marriage, but true eternal marriage to the beloved bridegroom whom God will provide for us. 
So regardless of our earthly marital status, we shall be united to Christ in an eternal bond of love if we trust Him as our Lord and Saviour. This is where this chapter is headed to, that God will provide a bridegroom for His bride and we can trust Him to provide for us. So the second big point that we'll look at today is dying and burying by faith. We'll look at chapters 23 and 25. So we've seen how God provided Rebekah and she comforted Isaac after his mother Sarah's death in Genesis 23. Uh, so it says in Genesis 23, verses 1 and 2, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. died at Kiriath Abba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So Genesis 23, interestingly, focuses less on the circumstances of Sarah's death, but more on the circumstances of her burial. So after mourning for his wife, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Verses 3 and 4. I think it's, it's, it's staggering to note that after all these years, Abraham is still a sojourner and foreigner. He has no portion in the promised land. Nothing. He has no property. Not even a place to bury his wife. You know, do, you, do you see the tension here in Genesis 23? Sarah, who received the promise with Abraham, has died. Yet the promises have not been fulfilled. You know, Abraham has no land to his name. You know, if Abraham was just looking for real estate, he could have returned to his ancestral home. You know, and pragmatically speaking, this would have made good sense. His extended family in his, in his ancestral homeland would have land, plenty of land, to bury Sarah. You know, but beloved, Abraham lived by faith, not by sight. He didn't do what was the most practical or pragmatic thing to do, but he trusted God's promises. It's not just about getting land. It's about believing God's promises. You know, and Abraham's example shows us that we shouldn't return to worldly ways, to worldly ways of doing things, but to trust God to provide. You know, the Hittites are happy to let Abraham bury Sarah in the best of their tombs, but understandably, they are probably reluctant to sell any land to Abraham, right? After all, this is their land. Abraham is just a visitor, maybe just passing through. Abraham, however, is seeking a more lasting stake in the promised land. So after some negotiation, uh, Abraham buys a field and the cave of Machpelah from this Hittite man named Ephron. And interestingly, Abraham pays the full price of 400 shekels. You know, we, we can't say for sure whether this is cheap or expensive, but I, I think the price seems high considering, you know, David later on in the Old Testament, David buys the land to build the temple and it, it, it is said that the land there costs 50 shekels. So Abraham pays, what, eight times more than what David paid for the land to build the temple. So factoring inflation over so many years, you know, this would have been a lot of money for Abraham to pay for the land. 
And what, what does this tell us about Abraham? Abraham puts his money where his, where his faith is. Right? I, I think maybe how we use our money is very telling about where our faith really is. And Abraham clearly shows that he trusts God. Trusting God leads him to bold action, including how he uses his money. How we use our wealth, how we use our money and possessions reveals whether we are trusting in God or not. It's a really, really good test, especially in this culture that prizes wealth so much, that hopes in wealth so much. How we use our money really reveals the state of our hearts before God. We invest in the expectation of future returns. So Abraham buys property because he believes that God will keep his promise to give his offspring the land. So living in the light of this hope, Abraham buys a burial place to sink his family's roots in the promised land. It's a very tangible action to say that, no, this is, our, this is where we belong. Because God has promised, so we belong here. We're not going back to our ancestral homeland. I'm going to spend money, a lot of money, and I'm going to sink our roots here in the promised land. So beloved, how does our stewardship of money and possessions reflect our hope in God and the promises of the gospel? I, I think this is something that we all need to hear, especially in living in the culture, like in, in, in a place like Singapore. Faithful stewardship is not just about being pragmatic. Faithful stewardship is not about getting the best deal. Abraham clearly did not get the best deal in what he paid for the land. Faithful stewardship is not just about getting good financial returns. It's not just about saving money. And it's it's surely not just about accumulating reserves. God desires that we steward what we have in the light of His promises in the light of the hope that we have in the gospel, not in the things of the world, not in how much we have materially. God desires that we steward what we have in the light of eternity, to lay up treasure. And God calls us to invest in God's people and in His gospel. So for example, we provide for those in need. Even, it may, even if it may not make worldly sense for us to do so. We develop men and women for ministry and we send them off to serve the gospel in other places. We support the work of evangelism and missions here and abroad. We, we, we spend money, we, we plant, grow healthy churches for the sake of the gospel. We're not looking for financial returns, we're looking for gospel growth. That's how we steward our resources in the light of God's promises. God, not money, not our savings or reserves, is our security and hope. I think Abraham models this well for us. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property, for a burying place by the Hittites, verses 19 and 20. Now, this burial plot may appear modest in the world's eyes, but it is like a down payment foreshadowing a fuller fulfillment 
of God's promises. And Abraham himself did not live to see the promises fulfilled. In Genesis 25, Abraham prepares for his death by sending away the sons of his concubines and by giving all he had to Isaac, the promised offspring. And in this, Abraham shows his faith in God who will continue his covenant with Isaac. Then Abraham dies, verses 7 and 8 in Genesis 25. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. God blessed Abraham, who died in a good old age, and he was buried with Sarah in the promised land, in the very same plot of land that he had bought from the Hittites. Abraham did not receive what was promised. The only portion of the promised land that Abraham ever owned was a burial ground that he had bought with his own money. Abraham died in faith, in the hope that God will keep his word. And Abraham was gathered to his people, which hints at how, God, at how death isn't the end of God's promises. Now, Abraham believed God's promises go beyond his lifetime and into eternity. And our hope is not our best life now, but that the best is yet to come. As it says in Hebrews 11, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now, it would have been easy for Abraham to just pack up and go back to his ancestral homeland, but he didn't. He lived by faith. But as it is, Hebrews says, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. You know, beloved, I, I pray that God may not be ashamed to be called our God, because we trust in the homeland that He will provide for us. Not an earthly city, but a heavenly one. After the death of Abraham, it says in verse 11, uh, in Genesis 25, God blessed Isaac, his son, God shows steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham's offspring. And the blessing of Isaac shows that God's plan will continue from generation to generation until his promises are fulfilled in the promised offspring, in Jesus, the son of Abraham. So Abraham lived and died in faith, looking forward to Christ's coming. You know, beloved, we too live and die in faith, you know, assuming that we will die before our Lord returns. We will also die in faith. We look forward to Christ coming again. So we are in very much like Abraham, we live and die in faith. And because we live and die in faith, we need not fear or despair of death. We do not grieve as those who have no hope, because Jesus has died and He has resurrected to conquer sin and death. You know, beloved, we deserve death. We deserve death 
and judgment because we have sinned against our Creator who is holy and righteous. But God, who is rich in mercy, He has given His beloved Son, Jesus, to save sinners like us. And Jesus died to bear God's judgment that we might be given if we repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And more than that, Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life and the unshakable hope of glory. Beloved, this is our confidence. We can live and die by faith because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And like Abraham, we can live as sojourners and exiles in this world as we await the fulfillment of the promises. We look forward as well to a better country, a heavenly one. And our promised land is not some piece of real estate in this world, but our promised land is the new creation itself. As it says in 2 Peter 3, according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So friends, this is our hope. This is the hope that God holds out to every one of us through the good news of the gospel because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, this past week, I was so encouraged spending time with Dennis and Daisy. I was at the wake for Daisy's father. It was so encouraging to hear a testimony of this older man's life, of how he was faithful to the end and how his family loved him for his faithful witness to them of the gospel. You know, my encouragement to those of us who are younger is to get to know the older saints among us. You know, what, what a joy it is to get to know someone older and to hear stories of God's steadfast love and faithfulness in this person's life. So after the service, you know, we go down to level three, uh, speak to someone who's older. Right? Speak, speak especially to the older saints who, have, who are such good examples to us of faithful perseverance through the ups and downs of life. And we have much to be encouraged by as we see you know, testimonies of God's faithfulness among us. So be encouraged by these examples of perseverance and hope. Now, beloved, God is preparing us for glory. We have a sure hope. For the God of Abraham and Isaac is not God of the dead, but He is God of the living. And when our Lord Jesus returns, we shall be raised with Him in glory. And therefore, we can live and die in faith because our God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, and He will keep His promises. Now, in a moment, after we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we will sing a hymn that's familiar to all of us, Amazing Grace. But there's a, there's a stanza in the hymn that is a bit less familiar, and it says this, Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Beloved, let us live and die in faith. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you indeed. You are gracious and merciful and you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Father, we thank you for how you have shown covenantal commitment and devotion to your people. You have not forsaken us though we have often forsaken you and been faithless. But Father, we thank you and praise you for how you have persevered with us 
and how you continue to keep us until we are home with you forever. So Father, give us great courage in the gospel. Help us to have hope in Jesus Christ, to trust him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.